0: Welcome to the Modern Futures Podcast. Humanity is evolving at a pace never seen before. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he discusses how new ideas and developments impact us today, how they will make tomorrow more productive, and how they can make life a little more challenging.
1: Today's Modern Futures podcast. I'm happy to be sat here with Karis O'Connell, CEO of Human.
0: So I joined Global Mechanic in 2000, and, uh, end of 2012, 2013. I started officially there and uh, worked at Global Mechanic for two years. Yeah. And what started out as some uh, somewhat, somewhat standard web, mobile based work quickly changed into a, a desire for myself to look at what was coming next. I'm and deep. what that really was for me was a regression back to the approach that I'd taken working at Nokia. Because when I worked at Nokia back in the day, uh, one of the products we worked on in Berlin um, in 2010 was the very early days of augmented reality. And uh, we we had a product called Data Lens And it was essentially, you know, hold your phone up, look through the phone, and it will show you points of interest and bring up lots of information and stuff like that. And uh, it was really a bit of a gimmick at the time. Obviously, we didn't expect everybody to be walking around with phones held up in front of their face. But for myself, what it showed me was it was a really interesting area of technology.
1: And and AR had been put into... Uh, popular film science fiction that there, there were some of the early innovators like general Lanier and nasa were doing a lot of work as yes. well and these crazy gloves and wires and headsets and everything like that but it was it was kind of yeah it was never really taken that seriously it seemed to be like in the realms of you know the corner of the r&d lab done by a couple of guys because they just think it's cool right it, yeah
0: it was it I, totally it was it's very you know academic right So like Jaron and early pioneers like Steve Mann, etc. You know, obviously Jaron was more on VR. uh, Steve was more on AR. uh, Arguably, this stuff has always existed in the labs. We saw the first attempt at the VR in the early nineties, and then you know, sort of rolling back into obscurity as the promise of like terribly rendered dinosaurs uh, in cyberspace didn't turn out to be something that people wanted. But I think for AR, that shrunk back to the lab and was more like, what can we use to sort of enhance our surroundings with, which is very much like Hollywood. And I think you know films like Minority Report at the time also kept that sort of area alive in the people's consciousness. So AR has always been something that, uh, it's kind of been more sci-fi in some way than VR. VR was always like Lawnmower Man and uh, you know, uh, strange days and kind of really really weird films whereas ar was just more like terminator minority report you know that kind of like embellishing the world with data heads so,
1: up display artificial yeah. intelligence yeah. like flick this switch and suddenly you're fully enhanced and you know who to yeah. kill
0: right yeah so of course being a globe mechanic i I wanted to move us more and more into areas of like emerging technology. And that included like wearable tech, like the obviously smartphones. We had the Pebble when it first came out. We're like, what can we do with this? It's a sensor on the wrist. Uh, it's an information system on the wrist. What can it do? Um, so the interest grew there, there uh, quite tremendously for me. We, we worked on a couple of projects. Uh, one was VR related. So we got the first Oculus. Yeah, DK One.
1: I re- I remember trying a headset that you built. Actually, you you yeah. you, you, you went off and built a headset.
0: Um... Yeah. So because I'm so ghetto, uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess it's a very British sort of garden shed at the back of the garden, knock it together with rusty nails and bits of gaffer tape. That's kind of what I did. So my first interest in in VR before the Oculus came out. That's right. Was take my old ballet ski goggles. And uh, I'd been, uh, I'd found an article on the web. Interestingly, this is kind of like uh, closing the loop here. Um, I'd found an article on the web that was about how to build your own stereoscopic headset, and it was actually an article that was written by Lucky and it was published on the University of uh, Southern California website. And I downloaded the paper, I printed it out, and then drew out the schematics, uh, bought a load of cardboard, and like arts and crafts materials to build structure, a glue gun, some goggles. And I went and found two lenses, which was at an old camera store on Main Street here in Vancouver that I'd found, bought these, went home, built this thing. And there was only one application I could get to work. Cause of course I had an iPhone and there was only one app at that time for VR. And it was built by the University of Southern California. And it was a basic in-room demo. Right. It fucking blew my mind. Like I glued this thing together and I remember the first time I put the phone on, put it on my face, and it was terrible, right? But it just it just ignited something right. that I was like, holy shit, this is Sure. Yeah.
1: And I, I remember trying it as well. I remember putting on those. It was yeah. like, what, what, what are you giving me here? Okay, yeah. okay. And you telling me about like you know how far the lenses had to be away from the yeah. eyes and all this stuff. And I was like, just, just give me, the, just give me yeah. them. Just. Look. And like, I remember putting it on it. It was like, oh, that's really interesting. Where the hell am I? And I think I was sat in my car and it was a dark, dingy night in yes. winter, like a few years ago, and it was. Okay, I don't quite have the enthusiasm about about this that you had, yeah. Because obviously you were thinking about what, what yeah. that could mean for your career, but I was like, this could change a lot in the world,
0: yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, so
1: you went from that and you built that, and then you, you got the dev kit for Oculus. So, got, so where from there? Yeah,
0: so we got the dev kit, and uh, of course the first hurdle, and this is something that you know uh, is still a hurdle now, is you know we're sitting there in GM in God Mechanic. And we've got the headset. We're sitting there with a bunch of people who are from like 3D and animation. Like, Right. So how do we build VR? And of course, it was like, okay, we need to use a specific program. In this case, it was Unity. Who knows Unity?
1: Which was used by game developers.
0: Yes. Yeah. Traditional game developers. And, you know, like Unreal and, and various other engines out there. But this was a problem because none of the people that were in the company were already, you know, in that area. So we had to literally start from scratch. And we found a guy, um, I worked with a guy internally who had studied C-sharp, actually, uh, but ended up being an animator. And he did modeling of like three-dimensional models. And he said, yeah, sure, let's give it a go. Let's try and see if we can build something. And so we literally, you know, sat there at night. Uh, after the daytime paying work and worked on VR right. and we kept working on it until we got something like running in in the headset and then we you know once we got something running we realized holy shit now we've done that now what should we do yeah. right? and you were
1: you were integrating like leap motion and other things yeah. with this as well yeah right?
0: so we very early like i was keeping it always away from games we were not intending to make games and entertainment it was always to try to see uh, can we make something that's practical? And I think the big part of that was, how do I interact? So coming from being a design, you know, working in design for so long, I was naturally thinking, well, how do you interact in this world? And you know, to that point, it was like sit in front of a um, uh, your computer, put the goggles on, you know, fumble around looking for the keyboard and the mouse, and try to sort of operate within that world. And then of course it moved to like traditional game pads integration. But for me, it was still like sucking for any other use than games. It was mm. like, right, I can't do anything still, right? What can we do and what would that look like? And so what we did was um, uh, I managed to convince Bruce and Tina to dedicate a bunch of resources to a project, which I called 20-Day Project. And the reason why I called it 20-Day Project, because that's what we timeboxed to get the project done.
1: And you didn't tell anyone about this. This was this was your top secret. It was a top secret
0: thing because we were trying to do something that we couldn't find anyone had done on the internet, and we couldn't find any help for. And we'd gone to Stack Overflow, and we'd asked bunches of developers, and we came up completely blank. So we decided that was a great reason to (laughs) to go in and do it. Um, Choose choose the difficult route, right? Yes, because
1: because difficulty and. Solving problems leads to good solutions yeah. or certainly a lot of learning.
0: Yes. We wanted to see if it was possible to create a narrative that had parallel temporal storylines. And what that meant was, uh, and actually one of the benefits at GM was their background in making short film and animation. They understood the concept of storytelling.
1: Which is a fundamental human capability yes. and has been around for thousands of years.
0: Yes. Exactly. so you know we we basically we had a a shell of a story which had been written actually not for vr it was just written as a, a set in the future sci-fi story by one of the guys there uh his name is chris brody uh he's still there at, at gm and he's you know an aspiring writer a screenplay writer and so he wrote this screenplay this treatment and it involved uh three people it's set in the near future and um the the VR part of it was that as a, the wearer of the headset, you're in a, like a first-person shooter type perspective. You are one of the characters. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to bounce between the characters in real time to get their sense of the story. Because we were always thinking to ourselves, what if you could be in someone else's head and view a situation from the way they've seen it? How would that change the way you interpret something, an event or something else? Through
1: through empathy. Yes. Trying to bolster what empathy is. Yes.
0: So the first hurdle was getting people in there because what we wanted to do was not use like 3D models, like cheesy 3D models, Mm. badly rendered. Yeah. We wanted to use real people. So we're like, how can we get real people into VR? Um, we downloaded a software at the time I downloaded it I did some research called uh, RGB kit it's from some two British guys who had come up with a way to do depth camera work using a traditional DSLR a off-the-shelf connect and a computer and a whole bunch of setup and you know esoteric approaches but at the end of it you get an incredibly incredibly impressive point cloud or bitmap of a scene
1: right? and, and humans being themselves the in real, in, in real yes. time
0: but imagine them rendered as point clouds yes and uh, actually there was something uh, at the time there was another uh, uh, project on kickstarter called clouds that's right and they used that software for a traditional filmmaking model and it got a lot of uh, attention for its look and feel we wanted to take what they'd done but put it inside of VR so when you were looking at people it gave you this strange feeling that this is actually someone real yeah. so I feel a connection
1: and clouds is really interesting I saw it at the XOXO festival yeah. a couple of years ago and and there's ten hours of footage yeah and you just choose your you choose your own path choose your own path. you choose your own path everyone yeah. from Bruce Sterling to Palmmalluky to whoever right yeah. there's lots of interviews with innovators about yes. thinking about the world and that's what was interesting about clouds and so so was this technology was this depth kit that you were using Yeah so
0: we had it before it was called depth kit okay. because it was called RGB kit then they rebranded it to depth kit because uh depth cameras would be becoming something that was uh interesting for people so the problem was that we we rec- we got four uh, sorry three actors we real professional actors to act out the scenes we had to stage the room with three connect cameras who were all linked to three rendering farms, uh, three, three PCs in sequence, linked together. And then what we had to do is everybody had to act the scene out at a distance from each other, because in the middle, there is a connect camera looking outwards, right? So for the actors, this was incredibly uncomfortable. They'd never seen anything like it. They didn't know how to do this. Um, you know, they, they, were, they, they had trouble understanding the sense of space right because we had to make them feel like they were not far away from each other you know they were maximum like a meter away from each other in the scene but actually in reality because the connects being between them because the distance you need for depth camera uh, footage they actually ended up being at least 15 20 feet away from each other in a sort of triangle formation so we did this it was all done in one take it had it has to be and then everything, everybody was captured and all of the, uh, the data was then rendered onto these PCs. When we got the data back, and they were, to bear in mind, they were captured using voxels, right? So it was voxel-based capture. And we, uh, A guy from Belgium helped us, a guy called Davy Lutz, uh, who I'd found by searching around the internet, the darkened corners of the internet, like, hey, has anybody got a, a real-time algorithm for capturing people that's more efficient than DevKit? because uh, the problem we'd found with DepthKit was that when we rendered a one minute scene, it ended up being 19 gigabytes in size. That is not workable. So we wanted something that was much more, much less data intensive. So uh, he'd come up with this algorithm. He was like, I'll give you the source code. You can go and compile it and build your own software using it. That's what we did. Um, so we were, all of this has been captured using this software. it uh, hasn't been released to date, actually. So we got the people in the scene. We then put them into Unity. We built the scene. Uh, We rendered the environment and the lighting and everything. But, of course, we were well over 20 days by this point. Um, It ended up being, at that point, 20 weeks of work. And, uh, you know, I think people were struggling because the computers were struggling. The thing was getting ever larger. And it was teaching us a lot about how complex it is to do VR. This kind of VR. Uh, and how complex it is to build interfaces in there because we had to build an interface inside of the interface, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, we did this, we learned a lot. We actually did a minor or small version of this for the BCAMA. Uh, we had a little installation there where we uh, captured the real environment, rendered it in, th- in three dimensional space, and then put this inside a headset that was inside the real space. So, you had this weird inside out kind of like. Breaking what is real and what is not, and this is
1: before a lot of marketers had even
0: seen VR. Yeah, yeah, considering it, nobody was. I mean, we were actually going around trying to convince people of it, and people were just sort of poo pooing it and like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's years away, right? And
1: and even that demonstration, and I was there, and I used I used the headset. It didn't blow people away as much as some of the VR experiences do today, because there's a lot more choice and people think that 3d uh, 360 degree video is 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 vr and, yeah. and suddenly that that seems to really like really blow people's minds a lot right yeah. but back then it was if you knew what it was doing it was like wow this is really really cool yes but no one really knew how hard it was this story that you're telling me this is around innovation right yeah. and and it's like here's a hypothesis this is what we want to try and prove no one's ever done this it's it's that hard road again
0: yeah yeah
1: it, it, it's choosing, not choosing um, to just do what everyone else is doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've always tended to be attracted to things that on the surface seem either impossible or, you know, incredibly hard to do. Because for me, I learned just as much from failing or not accomplishing it, the end goal, as you do if you achieve it. So you're better equipped you know, from an experience perspective to make better informed choices.
1: Yeah. Uh, Facebook talk about failing fast, but when you've got hardware, it's not necessarily yeah, fast, is it?
0: You can't fail that fast, unfortunately. You have to go a little bit further before you can fail. And then you can fail spectacularly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can spend weeks yes. and hundreds of thousands of dollars and then sit there <laughs> and... oh. Yes. But, but that's hardware. And that's, that's you know, that's why the the software economy, the app economy, you know, software is eating the world. That whole thing has been so important because people can prototype, build, yes. iterate super quickly.
0: Yes, they can.
1: But hardware is is, is not like that. Just no. having to build and solder boards or source suppliers and whatever, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, so, you know, here's the thing. I mean, one thing that I, I, I mean, to, to that point of software is eating the world, right? Um... This is true and it remains to be true. But as we head into the future where we're moving away from you know, traditional interact- interactive devices, and what I mean by that is like laptops, desktops, mobile phones, right? These kind of paradigms have been the same now for like decades, right? Literally like a decade and a half to two decades. We're now approaching a new event horizon of VR and AR what this means is it unlocks lots of new possibilities, but what it also means is that the world, that especially for developers and people getting into the space, the world that you you know, were involved with before, you know, hiring an app developer, building an app, everything is kind of worked out these days, right? There are not really any unknowns, right? You're gonna build a website, grab a you know, bootstrap, whatever it is, a theme, uh, an approach, you drop all the stuff in, you fill it with content, you test, and you iterate. That's it.
1: Or just get someone online to do it for two, $300, right?
0: Or that, right. VR and AR, I think, and we've seen this firsthand, especially uh, human, is VR and AR is incredibly, incredibly complex, right? And what that means is that you can no longer come in with a, a kind of gung-ho attitude of, oh you know i've designed something for the web or i've designed something for a mobile app and then expect to walk into the room and do something compelling in this space because you need to understand much much deeper than ever before technology like really actually the tech which is when you like if you're working on the web your knowledge or care for the tech doesn't go deeper than what browser you're running in right so you don't care about whether it's a, you know, a Macbook or a HP laptop. Here, it matters all the way down. There's no escaping you know, whether you're using depth camera for capture, whether you're using photogramma- uh, uh, photogrammetry, let's say, for uh, in- inputs, whether you're using things like refractive waveguide technology for the screen, or spectral refraction, or a retinal light field projection, you need to know now, if you're going into these areas, all of these technologies to be effective. Otherwise, you you are lost. Yeah. You will not be able. And even to do as
1: it. a designer and thinking about user experience, without that understanding, fundamentally, you're potentially going to get it wrong. Yes. And then, you've got the human side of things and the environmental side of things as well. And suddenly, you know what happens when we take this well thought through piece of technology that we think is going to work brilliantly and put it into different situations, right?
0: Yes. I think, yeah, I mean, that's a good point about, uh, uh, I, there's something to be said for wastefulness. One aspect that, that can be detrimental, I think, going forward is because hardware and software is getting closer intertwining. Till now, you know, we've had situations where for the most part, you know, your laptop hasn't really evolved for the last like 10 years, 15 years, apart from getting faster, right, more space, etc., that nicer screen. Same goes for a phone. We've kind of like reached the end of innovation in phones uh, per se, but that also means that, you know, there's less stuff being thrown away. Things last longer, right? If you're building digital services, right? Those digital services can hop, skip, and jump over devices, right? Wholesale, and they'll keep working. This means that there's not a lot to throw away. And also throwing away code doesn't have a physical impact. The problem is that, uh, you know, when we go into this world of like interconnected hardware and software, we're gonna to have to measure twice cut once because we don't wanna have so much landfill, right? Where we're running so fast that we're literally, you know, going, oh great, you know, so we've just built this headset and it's kind of awesome and it cost you X of thousands of dollars. Oh, look, that's old, there's a new thing and there's no way to transition between them. So it's just thrown out, right? and. It, you know, we don't want to accelerate uh, that situation more than what it has been to date, right? I mean, if you're thinking about ecology and, and like, uh, technology and how it contributes to the betterment of the planet, I think that's something that we have to be mindful of when we end, when we go into this new world of technology. So, you know, going back to uh, the AR stuff at, at GM, we did this project, we decided to stop it. <laughs> Because we knew we could go on forever. It's a bit like making a music track, right? Where you are never happy with the drums. And you go and you listen to it again. You're like, oh, just tweak this a little bit more. Maybe I could like bring the mids up more. And you just, you musicians know they can go on and on and on. It's the same thing with all, you know, any other form of creation. At some point you have to say, it's done. As good as we can do it. Let's put it to bed. And so we, we put that to bed at the same time, or coincidentally at the same time. We'd had a lot of dealings with somebody in Boston and he introduced us, and this is in the fall of 2014, to introduce us to Harvard University, which was for myself incredibly bizarre because we were asked to go to Boston and meet with people at Harvard. And I, I was kind of like, well, what is it about? And they said, VR. And uh, I went to Harvard and we ended up in a room in, in Harvard University with two people that were from a medical team. One of those people was the inventor of the CRISPR. And
1: uh, so, so that's CRISPR-Cas9 g- genome editing.
0: Right? Yes, correct. So I was in the room with this guy, like a hardcore boffin, who essentially was saying, we've got the, cu- we've got the cure for malaria. We know it works, that's not what you're here to verify. (laughs) But what we wanna do is try to explain the value of genome editing to the greater public. And the way to do that is to potentially use something like VR and create a compelling way for them to understand how genes work. So we rolled through a few scenarios with them. And uh, I was very much like, yeah, this would be a perfect fit for VR. One of the other ones was um, what about, you know, for use in medical industry for like chemotherapy and, and, you know, there was lots of detail. But what they were trying to look for from, from myself and from us was, can you build something like that? And remember, this is 2014. So I very much was of the, you know, of the opinion, yes, we can do it. But yes, it will be take a long time. It'll be very expensive. And this was still, you know, we still only had the DK1 at this time.
1: So DevKit 1 of Um, Oculus Rift. Yes.
0: Uh, We were still waiting for the delivery of the DK2. Uh, It was about to be uh, launched. And um, anyway, so we came away from that and it really resonated with me because I realized once again, I was being asked to look at things from a practical bent. You know, that sort of compelled me to think about, well, how could I build a team that could help build those types of things? Another Thing that was happening at the same time at GM was we um, had been approached by BC Hydro and uh, BC Hydro was looking for a technology to help protect line workers from electrical shocks uh, by warning
1: them. So BC Hydro being the utilities company yeah, that the, provides electricity the for, massive for, for British Columbia. Yes
0: exactly so they'd uh, they'd approached to, uh, not just myself, a whole bunch of different companies. Uh, we went through a procurement process and in the end, I won the pitch to to build a product for OBC Hydro. So it was a wearable device with packed full of sensors that didn't exist, right, none of this existed. So there was these two inflection points for me. There was the VR and AR push, and then there was this in, incoming, like we need to build a wearable. And so I was sitting inside of GM and I you know looking around and realizing that uh, realizing that GM is a very, very good animation and film house, right? It is not a product design company, right? And it, that is not its, you know, its remit. So how do I make a product design company? And so I talked to Bruce and Tina, and uh, I said to them, let's uh, let's uh, break apart and create a sister company. Uh, I'm going to call it Human and I'm gonna bring in uh, two people that I know very well. And so uh, I brought in Boris Mann and I brought in another friend of mine who I'd known uh, again for, and I think again, you introduced me to him, Ryan Betts, um, who's ex Adobe FunGap team, uh, a very good designer and also technologist and brought them in and said, here are the things, let's start working in these areas. And so we very quickly started working on the electrical wearable Uh, This became uh, a product called Proxy, which is now spun out into a separate company, uh, which we've worked on for the last year. And then on the VR and AR side, we worked on, uh, predominantly in VR, a product called Palmer, which was interaction, essentially an interaction paradigm that we'd shown at uh, a few talks. I'd shown it at uh, MIT uh, in Boston and... um, It was super interesting for us, but it was still missing a reason to live kind of thing as a product, as a standalone product. So we kind of kept that in the back burner. And then uh, this year, we decided this had been building and building and building. Uh, We'd come across a new optical technology, built it ourselves, and it turned out to be very similar to an already out there optical technology. It's no secret, like the uh, Meta 2 that was announced at TED.
1: the augmented
0: reality glasses yeah so uh, we looked at that and we realized it's perfect timing to go full all in on ar uh, as we've been working on it in secret for a year uh, in a sort of uh, academic approach once again and now we are in the process of productizing this and it's called scale
1: called scale yes so this, this is the idea that you're going to use Technology that we've got in our pockets to democratize access to augmented reality yes. environments. Or, or you you also talk about mixed modal realities. Yeah.
0: Course. So it is a it's a mixed reality product because uh, I mean I get it's a lot uh, where people are, hey what's VR what's AR what's MR what's transmogrified reality that's a Google term by the way uh, and only Google uses it doesn't make it any easier I think the best way to think of about it is. Everybody knows what VR is. It's like fully virtual worlds. I'm here, not here. I'm somewhere else kind of thing. Complete escapism from where you are. AR was something that was tied, I think, in the broader mindset to either mobile phones, like like I said, the thing that I worked on at Nokia Data Lens, holding it up, waving it around and noticing things around you. Uh, And then the other side of it was Google Glass. A lot of people think of AR as Google Glass. We get this a lot. It's like, hey, you're building Google Glass. It's like, no, that wasn't AR. Yeah. Same like Recon Instruments. Recon Instruments and um, Google Glass were similar technologies. They are heads-up uh, heads displays, right? Uh, and
1: direct to eye. So. Yeah,
0: they're just, they're, just uh, they're small screens in the corner of your eye. They don't understand the environment, and they don't overlay on the environment, right, contextually.
1: So... You're always looking away from the environment to yeah, fundamentally look, right. look into those interfaces, right? Yeah, well.
0: yeah. So mixed reality, uh, and you know, again, like HoloLens is one that maybe people have heard of. There's another one called Magic Leap, which we- is the... A billion-dollar question, uh, as they've taken so much funding.
1: $2.9 billion yeah. dollar question, maybe.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's in the billions. <laughs> yeah. uh, they are definitely the highest-funded startup in history that's never shown anything and but doesn't have traction and doesn't have any of the metrics that people normally use for uh, startup evaluations. But
1: the few people that have seen it are completely convinced. Are completely convinced. I mean, they've got Neil Stevenson, uh, yeah. who wrote Snow Crash. Yes, create the metaverse as an idea yeah. as their chief futurist yeah yeah I mean, and he doesn't you know I read an interview with him he
0: doesn't take jobs
1: no. <laughs> so but they've hired, they've hired him and they've hired a lot of people that yes that that, that are going to be changing things right
0: yeah they are and you know it remains to be seen exactly what this will be like and when it will come out uh, you know it's not going to come out anytime very soon there's a lot of technical challenges one is going to be miniaturization you know, they the, the, one of the biggest challenges with a lot of this stuff is getting it sort of smaller than a gargantuan helmet and also uh, moving towards things that are untethered. So, I mean, yeah, we we know that a lot of companies are, are moving down paths. HoloLens, you know, for example, you know they've got a $3,000 headset that's going to... It's actually technically hitting the market next month for developers only, but there's no official release date. So what we want to do is... Um, we want to i think it's in or rather i think it's incredibly important that this technology does not remain in the hands of the few right and what i mean by that is that um it's so expensive the barrier to entry is so high and it's so unproven that you know at the current state of, of speed of things it's not gonna actually make any dramatic impact on anyone's lives for another couple of years but we think we've got a better way and so what we're working on is a way to democratize that. We're trying to bring you AR to, to the masses. Right. Yeah. So with scale, that's what, really what we're going to be doing. And we're focusing on you know, affordability, yeah. accessibility, yeah. and extensibility.
1: So, so this is the idea that any, any person can get in the game on this, right?
0: Yes. We're going to turn people from being two-dimensional into three-dimensional just with a click. Right? It will happen without you really realizing it. So yeah.
1: This and sound this all sounds very cryptic.
0: I can't go into details about how we're gonna achieve it. Obviously. But
1: point. you're working on that already? Yeah,
0: we've got it working.
1: You've got it working yeah. and it's already gonna be there.
0: Yeah. So we're working on it right now. We are You know, in the process of working with companies, so we've got a couple of companies, I can't name them right now, but they are industrial companies who are interested in solution for their own needs. We see this as, you know, something that could hit the market by the end of this year and dramatically change the workplace, right? We know that none of the other AR type technologies out there are gonna be doing that this year. Uh, We also know that a lot of the technologies that are gonna be coming out are still tethered to a PC, um, so again, you need to spend a lot of money, and you can't move anywhere, and it's not really mobile, etc. We found a way around this. We found a way around all of this. So, yeah, we we're really, really excited about this because if we can even get, you know, half the way there, we've already leapfrogged everybody else.
1: everybody else that's getting billions of dollars in funding building their own hardware
0: yeah i mean you know magic leap will be the rolls royce we want to be the toyota prius so we're going to be the one that's more accessible but still you know offers good incredibly good bang for the buck and does what you need it to do efficiently and cheaply and that's really what we're aiming for we'll never beat google or Magic Leap or any of these companies on R and D expenditure because that's what they do best, right? But we're gonna stand on the shoulders of giants.
1: Which is the way that great companies
0: yes. progress. Yes. I think I believe so.
1: The iPhone yeah. is, is a product of of lots of other technology that was already developed before. Oh, yeah. They just brought it together in a different way, right? Yes, yeah. well, people... I mean,
0: if you think of the iPhone, the iPhone started out as the iPad. It was the iPad came first, yeah. right? It's just that the uh they felt that it would make more sense packaged as a phone than as a tablet, right? So, you know, what we see is a repackaging. What we're doing is we're also repackaging to a degree. We're going to repackage something in a way that you won't relate to it the same way again. So that's that's kind of what we're up to.
1: So, so okay, so you, you've, you've taken the, this uh, this journey. So all the way through design, designing phones and interfaces and UX and... And then going into looking at various technologies that help with visualization and immersiveness, and yeah. al- uh, like virtual reality now into augmented reality. So with this with this mixed modal um, situation, you know Marshall McLuhan very famously said, you know the medium is the message, but we don't even know what the medium is because we could be walking out onto the streets, and the streets, and the cars, and the people, and the sky, and the birds. And all of the projected information and everything that we're sucking in is is the message, but there's noise. So does this mean that we're going to need technology to reduce the noise, and we're just going to have a a single experience that's enhanced by these different realities around us, or or, or do you think that this is this is just going to be a complete separate kind of reality, and very soon. With, with adoption, more and more people in the world are going to opt into this different kind of reality to, to be the way that they live every day?
0: So I think, you know, the challenge, the challenge for society is not a technological adoption challenge. The challenge is actually how we're going to perceive the world and if we can handle it as a, as a, as a human race. Because when you're getting into areas like, like mixed reality and you think about something like Magic Leap, you think about, you know, they're, they're selling themselves on the idea that they're going to be able to put virtual objects into the real world where they're indistinguishable. And once you get to that level of fidelity, what is being alive and being in this world all about? What is real and what is not real? If you can't touch it, you will never know anymore, right? So this brings up all kind of interesting areas around, you know, psychological areas of, if we think about somebody right now, you know, running down the street, the high street, chasing something that clearly isn't there, we think, oh dear, they've got problems, they're mentally ill or whatever. But in the future, that's what people are gonna be doing. They're going to be chasing things. They're going to be in games. The goblins are appearing around corners. And they're going to see it. And it's going to look real. And they're going to be like, is it really there? Or is it not? Could you see what I can see? Are you sat on the bus? Is the person next to you? Are they real? Or are they part of a dream sequence that you've subscribed to? Right? What is real when you look at the future? And I think this technology, this is no joke. You know, This is really going to happen. And I've seen, I've experienced some of this tech and it's true those kind of those incredibly uh, bombastic claims are, are around how this is going to be and everyone's like ah you'll still know what's not real still look kind of shitty and stuff it won't look shitty and you won't know and so you know to advertising and to the world we live in this is going to pose a huge moral question to humanity because we will now have the ability to influence people on a level, uh, on a deep psychological level that we've never been able to do through traditional means, like you know the web and mobile and even like hoardings, right? Glancing at hoardings and noticing something. Now, the advertising and marketing industry is rubbing its hands together with glee because it's this is the holy grail. This is the this is the ark of the covenant for them. This is it. It's like we can now couple brands directly to people's synaptic you know synaptics it's you know we will no longer have to fight the noise or the friction between what i'm trying to tell you and that delivery mechanism there will be no delivery mechanism in the future it will just be there and it may be real or it may not be you won't know
1: and you'll be sat there like on a park bench and there'll be a polar bear sat next to you saying hey look at me drink this delicious coke
0: yes exactly. and, and
1: you might not even have the choice because whoever's uh whoever's sponsoring the stream or the stream that you subscribe to yeah maybe it is it is streamed reality in the future yes.
0: i mean it, you, the, it's like
1: the ad, there's no advertising breaks there's just little guys in the corner like you know that's exactly the, it the, the, the lucky the lucky charms leprechaun just yeah. like just running around and then the the coca-cola polar bear yeah just over there or whatever right? i
0: mean you know it's it yeah, people who 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 smoke weed, you know, they often talk about getting the fear, the paranoia, right? You know, where they feel like people are looking at them or whatever. Now, if you think about VR, like Palmer Luckey, John Carmack, etc., often talk about, you know, the responsibility in VR to not do incredibly horrific games because it can really frighten people, right? You can frighten people to a level that like traditional games or horror films. Don't do. And but, I've experienced some of these. Yeah. And,
1: yeah. and even, even people like a previous uh, guest on the podcast, Danny Unger, you know, very famously wrote an article about the first death in virtual reality. And it's not a death in virtual reality. It's a death from it's, the reaction to yes. virtual reality, a You'll heart attack. or in reality. Or, yeah, in right? reality uh, with, with a virtual stimulus, right?
0: So when you think about mixed reality, you're going to have situations where if they're abused, you could have someone nefariously uh, uh, put characters into your your field of view people looking at you people watching you following you right down dark alleyways at night and you're looking back and you're like is that really a person there or is it not right what is real what is not are people really watching me or are they not i mean if you think about how far face swapping has gone right and now imagine a world where everybody's identity can be swapped out on the fly where you're looking at faces and they're turning into demons faces. We are talking about Ken Kesey's acid test on a global level of like potential impact, like, you know, LSD and uh, all of these things in the real world being fed directly to your brain, where your brain is desperately, you either got to rip it off your head and say, I can't be part of this world. Or you're forcing your brain into having to deal with it right yeah. and this is where it gets incredible because you know if you look at magic leap magic leap is showing all the nice things right if you look at their uh, their website it's got a picture of a, a whale over the beach you know and it's all wonderful and they've got seahorses in a classroom they've got uh, the yellow submarine gently floating down the street of course that's great but maybe Maybe people are going to put bad things in there as well, right? Evil things, nasty things.
1: Or even serious things. I mean, I don't necessarily think it has to be particularly evil. But extra policemen on the street could give a level of anxiety to certain people. Not necessarily that they're, you know, they're not necessarily feeling safe by the presence of police. In fact, they might feel less safe. Yeah. Because... A greater police presence means that there's greater danger. Danger at that point in time. Yes. So even the normality here, I, the normality that's going to be injected into our normality. Yes. Is is probably going to be more fearful. It's it's, it's like the uncanny valley to to borrow a term. Of of the virtual world in the augmented world. Yes. That everything just feels a little off. Yeah because everything's going to be there. I, I think this is where we, we're going to get to a point of ethics and when we choose to plug in, not plug in, but there's going to be a lot of people that are, that are going to be jacked in all of the time. and
0: They're going to be jacked in, and I think what's arguably more nefarious about AR and MR uh, to VR is VR, you opt in or opt out, you put the goggle on, and you know from that point it's not real. You know, even though you may feel you're in a scene, you're always at the back of your head aware this is not real, I am not really here. I'm in a metaverse, I'm in a game, I'm in a war zone, I mean, whatever, but I can pull a goggle off, it's dumb. The thing is with with MR is it's a tool, right, that you just wear. And for the most part, it'll just offer up interesting information, but uh, it can drift. There is areas of drift into darkened corners, which can be slowly pushed towards you where you don't know whether or not it is part of the simulation or it's just actually happening, right? You then have to make quick decisions reactively. What do I do? Do I fight or flight? If something appears in my peripheral vision and gets really close to me, do I react and try and punch it in the face, right? You know, it's like, oh, freak. I'm freaked out. I push it away. Oh, no, it was a real person, right. you know, who's trying to whisper something to me and you're like, Ugh you know, we're going to have everyone sort of, the, the future is going to be twitchy, right? It's a twitchy future where it's, everything is going to feel less, uh, less e- easy than it's been till now. And I think, you know, we're not uh, ourselves human and at scale. We're not building a thing to put like dancing robots or monsters in or anything like this. We're using it for productivity purposes, right? We want to build the future of computing but we also are still fully aware that once you do that and you unleash the technology as with any technology you can then utilize this for whatever reasons you need right psychops right so we're watching this i've been in a few talks on this specifically around psychology and sociology and i think you know a lot of this is going to come down to the future of design and the future of designers Uh, are not gonna be people who know HTML and CSS and all that. I think that's gonna be over. I think it's gonna be psychologists. They're gonna be the people designers of the future. They're gonna design stories and situations for people because it's gonna become so important to understand what impact that's gonna have. You could have lawsuits on your hands in AR if you've designed an experience that you've not taken into account the psychological impact. And there are people, like you say, dropping, having palpitations, they're now having problems you know with their life living their life wait for the first lawsuits to drop like you've altered my consciousness i can never see the world the same so it's profound it's a profound change it's a it's a, a revolutionary change that is coming it is not just an evolution of what we've had to date which is ever bigger screens ever thinner computers Everything's just still something that you open, you do something and you shut and you put away, you go back to the real world, we will have a situation where you won't really have that anymore. The, none of these machines will make sense in the future. Like, why would you use a laptop then? What's it for?
1: No screens.
0: Well, Pro- screens everywhere. Pro- processing,
1: processing boxes, but screens just popping up in your yeah, vision, wherever you need wherever the screens need at it. the right point in time. I mean,
0: Steve Mann had it. You, know, you can use this also for, for good. Steve Mann with his iTab, who um, came up with the uh, uh, replacing advertisements with Wikipedia articles? There's going to be good hacks. Yeah. There's going to be ways that kids that are exposed to it are not going to be like bombarded by Coca Cola adverts and Hot Wheels toys and stuff like this. It's going to be, there will be ways that we can take the environment and we can use the environment to trigger really good things for kids. So there's a lot of great, great benefits.
1: Okay. I think we could talk about this for about five hours and I think we have done yeah. previously. So, so I think I'd like to say thank you very much, Karis. Um, very exciting to hear about scale. Thank you for sharing your journey with design. It's an interesting world. It's a slightly scary world. We're going to have to think ethically about what's right for humanity. Yeah. But I guess that's, that's a deeper conversation that maybe we have in the future.
0: Yeah, keep the future twitchy.
1: <laughs> Karis O'Connell, thank you very much. Thank you.